Welcome, my friends, to this edition of the History of Christianity Season 2. Today we're on Part 8. We're going to be talking about John Calvin. If you know anything about the Protestant Reformation, you know at least one of these two names, and probably both, Martin Luther and then John Calvin. So I know this is one that many of you have been excited about and have been waiting on, so let's jump right in. We start by looking at Calvin's early career. The most important systematizer of Protestant theology in the 16th century was John Calvin. Calvin was born in the small French town of Noyon on July 10, 1509. John's father was able to obtain for him the income from two minor ecclesiastical posts to help him with his expenses as a student. So John's father had a good relationship with the Catholic Church. He had some standing with them, and it allowed him to do what so many we've read about through the years have done, and that is to take on one of these ecclesiastical posts simply as a form of income. And this was for Calvin to have a little bit of income while he was a student. These positions could range from giving you a lot of income to just a little bit, and what was needed at this time was just a little bit. It wasn't that he needed to be able to make a living for himself. So this was a way to finance John's career as a student. But again, it just highlights the ongoing problems with the Catholic Church and the abuses and all of the issues that have been dealt with for years and people thought they had them fixed for years. They just keep coming back. And this has become such a common thing by this point, nobody really even thinks twice about it. John studied in Paris, hoping for a career in the church. John became familiar with humanism and the conservative reaction against it. And when we look at his career, particularly later on as a lawyer, he was much more on the conservative side than he was on the humanist side, but he was exposed to the concepts of humanism. So that's kind of laying some groundwork for what's to come. Here, John also became familiar with the doctrines of Wycliffe, Huss, and Luther. Yet John remained loyal to the Pope. So Calvin is exposed to these guys who created the foundation for the early part of the Reformation. Obviously, Wycliffe and Huss weren't part of the Reformation, but they were, they came before it. They were precursors to it. Luther is the guy that makes the break, and he's the one who everybody knows. But if it weren't for Wycliffe and Huss, then there possibly could not have been a Luther. And yet, through that time, John still stayed loyal to the Catholic Church. He didn't make a break yet, but it's coming. In 1528, he received the degree of Master of Arts, but his father had fallen out of favor with the church. So something had happened between his father and the church in leadership, and he was, his father was not for the church at this time. He had, was going against it. And so it changed his opinion about what John needed to do, and he encouraged Calvin to pursue a career in law, which Calvin then went ahead and did. He was going by what his father asked him to do. So he begins his studies as a lawyer. However, when John's father died, he returned to Paris to continue his studies in theology. So there's a little bit more to say about him, his career as a, as a student of the law, but we really don't have time for it today. The, the biggest thing to say about it is that he had two primary influences on him as far as the teachers he had. One was more of a a progressive humanist type and one was more very conservative. And when they got into a dispute, Calvin took the conservative side. So just something to keep in mind about him. But he didn't stay in law. He did study it, but he didn't stay in it. As soon as his father died, he didn't feel like he had to go by his father's wishes anymore. He could move on with his life. And he did. And he went back to what he truly wanted to do. He returned to Paris to continue his studies in theology. 
So in Paris, Calvin studied theology and eventually joined the Protestant movement. We don't really have a great deal of information about what brought him to that point. He wrote little about his break from Catholicism. We, we don't get the, the full story. We don't get the information like we got with Luther. Luther is the one that tells us the most. Zwingli probably next, but his was a lot less than Luther, and then Calvin's almost non-existent. But it's likely his study of Scripture and the influence of his circle of humanist friends helped him come to the conclusion that he must leave the Catholic Church. Whatever the story was there has been lost to history, but we do know, obviously, that he made that break. In 1534, he returned to Noyon and gave up the ecclesiastical post his father had secured for him. So he's making the break now, and he doesn't want to continue to take income from the church that he's left. In January of 1535, Calvin was sent into exile in Switzerland in the Protestant city of Basel. Now, what happened with Calvin was, at this time in France, Protestantism had been kind of tolerated, but there was a change. It wasn't a change in the leader, but just a change in policy, where Protestantism was not being tolerated. And so a lot of people that were Protestant leaders, people that were well-known in the Protestant movement, they got thrown out, and Calvin was one of these. So he leaves and goes to Switzerland, and he ends up in Basel. There he spent his time in study and literary labors. And this is really what Calvin wanted to do. If you read any of the things that he had to say about himself and the work that he did, the idea of becoming a leader of the Protestant Reformation was not one that he had for himself. And again, just think about all through this study, both this first season and then this season we're on now, Looking back at how many people were reluctant leaders, reluctant to be in charge of movements or to start a movement or to further a cause, it just seems like it keeps on happening over and over again. It's the ones that don't seem to want to do it that end up doing it. And this is just one more example of that. Calvin, this was not what he thought he would do. He wanted to be the scholarly type. He wanted to sit up and think and read and write. He wanted to be a guy from behind the scenes that was producing information and producing literature that helped to further the Protestant Reformation for sure. But he didn't want to be a, a pastor type and he didn't want to be a, a leader that people went to for, for the movement at all. That was not his idea. He wanted to do this, but it, of course we know that it didn't work out that way. Calvin began a short summary of the Christian faith from a Protestant viewpoint. His hope was to become an influential writer, not one of the leaders of the Reformation. So again, that was what he wanted to do with his life. The work was called The Institutes of the Christian Religion, one of the most profoundly influential writings from the Protestant Reformation still resonates today and was also very well known in his time. The purpose in writing it was to fill in areas of basic doctrine such as the Trinity and the Incarnation, which had been addressed very little by Protestant leaders. So the reason for that is simple. The Protestant leaders were under fire, and they were dealing with the issues that were the most of the forefront, the things that they were being attacked on, or the things that they felt were necessary to help a person make a break. So some of these other issues, they just didn't, they didn't, it's not that they didn't care about them, they just didn't really have time to deal with them. They were putting out fires all the time, or they were fighting a, the fight. Well, Calvin noticed this, and he said, you know, somebody needs to be the one to come in and give the Protestant position on all of these things. And that's what he saw himself as doing. That's what he wanted to do with his life. And obviously did a great job. This Institutes of the Christian Religion is, as I said earlier, is very influential in his time. It's still very influential to this day. And he saw a need for that. Continuing on, the first edition appeared in Basel in 1536. 
It was a book of 516 pages and contained six chapters. So a decent sized book, but not multi-volume book and not just a crazy big book. So this first volume was, was pretty small in comparison to what it was going to become. The first four chapters dealt with the law, the creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the sacraments. And then the last two summarized the Protestant position regarding the false sacraments of Rome and Christian freedom. So those six chapters, 516 pages, that was the, the very first edition. The book enjoyed immediate success. The first edition, written in Latin, sold out in nine months. Why was it written in Latin? Well, we know that not all of the common people read Latin. That was one of the big issues of the day. And one of the things that had to happen was that the scriptures and early writings of the Christian church needed to be translated into the vernacular of the different areas. But one thing about Latin was it was universal across Europe. So while not everybody could read it, it could be read in every single country. Well, that wasn't true of other languages. If you wrote it in French, then you automatically limit your audience because anybody that can read French can read it, but anybody else that's not in France or doesn't have a reason to know French wouldn't. But there are going to be people in every single country that could read it in Latin and then they could translate it themselves or they could let people know what it said. So that actually was a, a selling point for it. It actually helped it to spread faster. From that point on, Calvin continued adding to the book, which grew in volume through the years. So it got, you're going to see at the end here that it got to be quite big. These new additions included the controversies of the time, the opinions of various groups that Calvin believed to be in error, and the practical needs of the church. So those things just kind of added on through the years. New editions appeared first in Latin and then in French. So he started to stagger them. He would put them out in Latin first for everybody to be able to read no matter what country, but then he would put out an edition in French. So they would stagger through the years. The Latin and French editions of 1559 and 1560 were the last to be published in Calvin's lifetime and are considered the definitive editions. So the very last ones that he lived to publish were the Latin edition in 1559 and then the French edition in 1560. These final editions contain a, a total of 80 chapters. I just want to read this to you. So let me quote from the book here. And this is about the total of 80 chapters that appeared in the last edition of the Institutes. So I'm quoting now, quote, the first book treats of God and revelation as well as of creation and the nature of the human creature. The second is concerned with God as Redeemer and how this is made known to us, first in the Old Testament and then in Jesus Christ. The third shows how, through the Spirit, we can share in the grace of Jesus Christ and the fruits this produces. Finally, the fourth book deals with the external means of that sharing, that is, the church and the sacraments. The entire work shows a profound knowledge not only of Scripture but also of ancient Christian literature, particularly the works of Augustine and of the theological controversies of the 16th century. There is no doubt that this was the high point of Protestant systematic theology at the time of the Reformation, end quote. So that kind of gives you an idea of what those chapters contain, but that's a lot bigger than what it started out as. You had six chapters to begin, 516 pages, and now you've got a total of 80 chapters in, what was it, four different books. A lot of material that had to be covered, but Calvin did it, and this became a, a big-time influence in, in its day and even till today. So what happened to Calvin after that? Calvin decided to settle in the Protestant city of Strasbourg to continue his work, and this is in France. So even though he'd been exiled from the area he was in France, he could still, this was kind of a border town, 
so he could get in there, and that was his plan. He was going to go to Strasbourg, and he was going to continue his work, and he was going to continue writing and, and being this literary guy, this academic guy, and had no intention of becoming the leader that he ended up becoming at all. But on his way to Strasbourg, Calvin had to make a detour through Geneva. So this is obviously in Switzerland. Geneva had recently been declared a Protestant city by the government of Geneva. So they just decided it was. It wasn't that everybody in the town wanted to be Protestants, but they did. And so when once they did, the people in the Catholic Church just abandoned the, the Catholic Church. So there's a large group of Protestants there now. Some of them really knew what they what it was all about and a lot of them that didn't. This had taken place a few months before Calvin's arrival and they were in need of leadership. They needed somebody who really knew theology, that could be a pastor to them, that could teach them, that could show them the ways of the Protestant movement. And along comes Calvin, who is not planning to stay in Geneva and is certainly not planning to become a big leader in Geneva. But something happened to him. While there, the leader of the Protestants, William Farrell, was made aware that Calvin was in town. Farrell met with Calvin and presented him with several reasons for Calvin to stay in Geneva. Calvin refused to stay, so he made his, his case. Farrell did, and Calvin just said, you know, great argument, but I'm not staying. I'm moving on. I've got my plans, and I, I'm staying here. He basically was planning to stay there one night. But Farrell didn't give up. He made one last appeal, and he issued a warning to Calvin. So I want to read again what he had to say, because this is pretty crazy. This is the way, if you ever need, I guess, volunteers, it's hard to find volunteers in churches sometimes. Maybe you can use some of these words. And this is Farrell giving Calvin the, the hard sell on, on staying in Geneva and doing the work there. Quote, may God condemn your repose and the calm you seek for study. If before such a great need you withdraw, and refuse your succor and help. Calvin continues his report. These words shocked and broke me, and I desisted from the journey I had begun. So <laughs> Farrell kind of gave him the big time guilt trip and said, you know, God, basically God's going to get you if you don't stay here and help these people. You're not going to be able to go and have your little peaceful life of doing your studies and writing your books. And if even if you were, I'm going to I'm going to ask God to keep you from that. And he, he just kind of laid it out there that, hey, these people need you. And it's kind of being a little bit selfish to go do this life that you think you want to do, because let's face it. Yeah, it's ministry, but it's your desires. But here's a people in need. And so Calvin took this to heart and it changed everything. He decided after that sale, he decided to stay. Soon Calvin's theological insight, legal training, and reforming zeal made him the central figure in the religious life of Geneva. Did he go there to necessarily do that intentionally? No, but it just naturally happened. He was the, that kind of guy. He was a natural-born leader, and he had a lot of passion for this and a lot of knowledge for this, and he, he became the guy. And you may think, well, maybe that made Farrell upset. No, it didn't. Farrell became his leading collaborator and supporter, so he stood right with him. He was serious about Hey, we need a leader. We need a guy. And I'm not the right guy, but this one is. And he became a big supporter of Calvin. As soon as Calvin and Farrell began promoting true reform of the church, the bourgeois who had encouraged the break with Rome began demurring. Now, this bourgeois group, they have their own reasons for being involved in the Protestant movement. It may not necessarily all be theological or even against corruption. Some of it was, I'm sure, but one of the big things was they wanted to get the hands of the Catholic Church out of their pockets. This was the big complaint of all these neighboring countries was 
they kind of used these people as a bank. And anytime the Catholic Church needed to build a new building or spruce up something or whatever it was, if they had a want and a desire, they would just go out to these people in these countries and take their money. Now, I mean, they didn't steal it from them, but they made it made them feel like they had to give it. And this group was, this is the bourgeois, this is the merchant class. So they're not the wealthiest, but they're also not the poor. They are, they're making money and they want to keep their hands on it. And they don't need the Catholic Church coming around to take it. So they're all gung-ho about let's kick the Catholic Church out and be Protestants until there starts to be some real reform as a result of Protestantism. And that they don't want. They were happy with the status quo as long as it meant getting the church out of their pockets. But as soon as it starts costing them something on the other side of the thing, they didn't want that either. So this group was, they weren't all that great to have as supporters, but they had them anyway. This came to a head when Calvin insisted on the right to excommunicate unrepentant sinners. The government would not allow this, and Calvin was banned from the city. Farrell, though not banned himself, chose to join Calvin in exile. So Calvin gets kicked out. He runs afoul of this group of people that had a lot of power, and he's not backing down. He's not the type that's going to back down and give in, of course. He's, he's going forward with what he thinks to be correct, which he should, and for his efforts, he gets thrown out. So Calvin's out now, and you may be thinking, oh, you know, poor Calvin. I'm sure he hated being thrown out, and he probably saw that as one of the dark days of his life. Well, maybe not so much. Calvin saw this as a God-given opportunity to return to the life of scholarship he had desired. Calvin's thinking on this is, well, I did what I was asked to do, and it wasn't my idea to do it in the first place, but I did it anyway. But now that they've kicked me out, there's no reason that I have to feel obligated to do this. I don't have to go find another town to be a pastor. I don't have to do any of those things. I don't have to go look to try to prop myself up as the leader of the Protestant Reformation in France or Switzerland or anywhere else. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to just go on about my business the way I had planned to do it all along. So he finally made his way to Strasbourg. After all these years, he finally gets to go where he had planned to go and intended to go all the time to do what he had planned and intended to do all the time. But once again, as we see in history, Plans that we have don't typically always work out, and they certainly didn't work out that way for Calvin because there's a new group that needs his help. There he found a large community of Protestant exiles from France. Martin Bucer, the leader of the Reformation in Strasbourg, insisted that Calvin become their pastor. So here's another guy. Here's Bucer. He sees old Calvin coming in. He's thinking, hot dog. I've got, Cal I've got John Calvin here, and I'm the leader of this group, but I'm not on his level, so let me put him in charge. So here we go. Calvin comes on in. He's thinking he's got the easy life now. He's going to sit up in a room somewhere with a nice window facing outside and just spend his life thinking and writing. And he would become the literary guy that he always intended to be. And I mean, he didn't even get to town very long. And all that went out the window. They need Calvin again. Booster became Calvin's mentor and profoundly influenced Calvin's theology. So a lot of the stuff we read from Calvin are really things that he got from Booser. And not to say that he didn't agree with it and they weren't his shared thoughts as well, but he got concepts, he got a lot of stuff that he came to believe originated with him by the teaching of this guy, Martin Booser. So Booser is a really big influence on Calvinism. During this time, Calvin completed a French liturgy 
as well as French translations of several psalms and hymns. Remember, Strasbourg is in France, so he's back in France now. And he does get to spend his time doing some of the writing stuff that he wanted to do. And he does that here. While in Strasbourg, Calvin prepared the second edition of Institute. So he keeps on adding to his book. And though that second edition really shows signs of Booster's influence. If you read it and compare it to the first edition, you see a lot of things in there that weren't in the first edition. Of course, every edition is going to have that, each new one. But you start to read a lot of Booster. And it's very obvious that Booster is a big influence on him at this time. He also got married. He married this woman, Adelette de Burr, and it was she stayed his wife until she until she died eventually. But Adelette was a big supporter of him and a, and a loyal spouse for Calvin for the years that she had with him. Calvin remained in Strasbourg from 1538 to 1541. These were happy years for him. So even with him doing the work that he was doing there. He still got to do a lot of his academic stuff as well, work on his book. He got married. You know, it was a it was a good time. It was the kind of the place he had always thought he would be. But it didn't last forever. Even though he did enjoy it, and even though things had gone really well from him there, as soon as the conditions changed in Geneva, and the government changed around to being more friendly to him, they invited him to come back, and he did it without even thinking twice. Calvin really did. He found he fell in love with the people there in Geneva. He he had a church there. He was the pastor. He loved his people, and he had a pool back there. So even though he had, in a way, got to go do what he thought he always wanted to do, it, it turns out that really what his heart was about were, were these people. And so he didn't even think twice about it. He headed on back to Geneva to continue his work there and to minister to the people there. And that's where he developed a series of ecclesiastical ordinances. Calvin returned to Geneva in 1541. One of his first acts was to prepare a series of ecclesiastical ordinances that the government approved with some modifications. The government of the church in Geneva was placed primarily in the hands of the consistory. This was a body whose members consisted of the five pastors of the church and also the 12 lay elders. Though the elders held more positions in the consistory, Calvin's advice was usually followed. So the way they set this up to govern the church was that there were five pastors and 12 elders. So obviously the elders are going to outvote the pastors. They've got over double the number. But Calvin still was the leader of this group. And even though he didn't have any more of a vote than anyone else, they still went along with what he said. He was the leader there and they didn't go against him. They, they followed what Calvin said. So this group was definitely a voting body that had given the primary leadership to the, the lay people of the church. But in reality, functionally, it was really, they went along with what Calvin suggested pretty typically. The ordinances organized the ministry of the church into four orders. Calvin felt that these best reflected the practices of the New Testament. He got his ideas of how to set up ministries in the church in, in these four orders from reading the New Testament and trying to follow the way the churches did it then. It's obviously the scripture is our only source for faith and practice, but it doesn't mean that every church functionally has to work the way a New Testament church did, because if you read the New Testament, the churches did things differently. They didn't do everything exactly the same. And there are definitely some common orders given, some common instruction and direction given to them that would apply to every church. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to pattern every church after exactly the way New Testament churches did them. But it's also not the worst place to go for 
a, where you want to look at as an example of how a good church might function. So Calvin did that, and he came up with four orders. The pastors were in charge of the ministry of the word and the sacraments. The teachers or doctors were responsible for the education of the community of faith, both children and adults. The elders supervised the religious life of their neighborhoods. They admonished those who had sinned and reported the unrepentant. So these were kind of the, they were the little snitches. <laughs> if they found people that weren't towing the line, they'd come and report them. And that was the elders group. So they may not have been all that popular. I'm not sure. The deacons were in charge of the social services of the church. So there you have four groups, four representations of leadership in the church and what their functions were. And that's the way that Calvin set up his church. The ordinances that he came up with were the way that the church was set up. Looking at more that took place in Geneva, during the next 12 years, the consistory and the government of the city clashed repeatedly. You'll find that the Calvinist groups tended to be pretty heavy-handed with the way they dealt with people. They didn't put up with a whole lot of, of problems or nonsense. They would pretty much try to nip it in the bud as quick as they could, and they could be pretty harsh, and the government of the city didn't really like that, so they clashed a lot. The source of most of the clashes was that the consistory, following Calvin's lead, sought to regulate the customs of the citizens with a severity not always matched by the government. So they're really getting after the people of the city, and the government's looking at it and saying, that may be just a little bit too strong. Y'all are, I mean, we're strong, but we're not that strong. We give people a little bit of a break, and you guys are not doing any of that. And so they clashed quite a bit because of that. By 1553, the opposition to Calvin had come back into power. So Calvin's about to be in trouble again. Here he is, the opposition party's back in power, and they're not liking what Calvin's doing. But something happens as, as often these little quirks of history come around and it changes things. It was then that the process against Michael Servetus took place. The question you've got to have now is who in the world was Michael Servetus? Servetus was a Spanish physician whose physiological studies had made a significant contribution to medical science. But he also authored several treatises in which he argued that the union of the church and state after Constantine's conversion was a great apostasy. Now, you can make a case for this. I don't necessarily disagree with that. There, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say it was a great apostasy. That's probably too far. But there are definitely some significant problems that took place that probably needed to get purged out of the church because it was things changed in, in some big ways with the early church in, in order to make way for the emperor, make him feel comfortable there. And even things we do to this day and the way we organize our churches, the way we have worship services, even the way the buildings are laid out, a lot of that has to do with Constantine coming in. So to, to point out that there is a big problem with the, the way the church operated before Constantine versus after Constantine is not actually the worst point. Again, it's going a little too far, maybe a lot too far to say it's an apostasy. But it definitely could be looked at as, you know, we probably need to get back to doing things the way that they did them initially and maybe strip out some of the stuff that was done purely to allow the rich and powerful to come into the church and feel comfortable. So you can go with Servetus a little bit down this road, but he comes up with the next thing and you, got, you can't go with him anymore. He also contended that the Council of Nicaea in promoting the doctrine of the Trinity had offended God. So he was against the Trinity. Well, that just, that loses you then. You can't go with him down that road. You may could make a point or at least say, you know, in, in theory, I agree with you. I'm not going to say it's an apostasy, what happened, but I do think it was 
there's some problems with it. But when you start throwing the Trinity out, then you got we're we're not on the same road anymore. We're we can't we can't go together. We're gonna have to deal with you. Servetus had escaped prison in France where he was being tried for heresy when he was recognized in Geneva. So the Catholic Church had him there. They were putting him on trial for heresy, and his next move was going to be to be burned. And Buddy got away. So he was on the run, and he got to Geneva, and he was recognized. Now, how people in this day and time recognize people, I don't know. Uh, somehow his face was well known enough that they knew who he was. And you think today you can see anybody on a Google search pretty much. You can get to know what somebody looks like pretty easily, but how did they do it then? I'm not sure, but he was definitely on the run, so I guess there were some publications out there about him and probably had a picture or something, but whatever it was, they recognized him. As a result of that, he was arrested, and Calvin prepared a list of 38 accusations against him, so he's got a bunch of stuff coming down on his head. 38. That's a lot of charges. And he's going to have to face it, up, face up to it. Some in the city who opposed Calvin's took up Servetus's cause. Their argument was that since he had been accused of heresy by Catholics, he should be seen as an ally to Protestants. So they really don't, they really don't care anything about Servetus. They're not trying to help him. They're trying to get back at Calvin. But their argument is that old argument that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So the idea is the Catholic Church is the enemy. And if they don't like Servetus, then the Protestant church ought to look at him as an ally. Hey, he, the Catholic church don't like him, and we don't like the Catholic church, so we surely were on the same side. But the various cantons of Switzerland, both the Catholic ones and the Protestant ones, all agreed that Servetus was a heretic by any standard. Whether you applied Catholic standards or Protestant standards, when you start throwing the Trinity out, you're going to be a heretic regardless. Servetus was burned to death as a heretic, though Calvin asked for a less cruel death by beheading. Now, Calvin was all about him dying as a heretic, but he just thought, you know, there's really no reason why he's got to burn up. He, he's a bad dude, but is he bad enough to make him die an excruciating, painful death? Well, eh, let's just behead him. But they didn't take his advice on that part. <laughs> they decided they were going to burn him at the stake. So, unfortunately, Servetus, he, he didn't end up doing so great, and there he is, dead burned up but what are the ramifications of that why well, this is a big deal well there's two things first Servetus's death was heavily criticized especially by Sebastian Costello who Calvin had expelled from Geneva for having claimed that the Song of Songs was a poem of erotic love so this guy had gotten on the bad side of Calvin Calvin had no problem kicking somebody out he was all about it and he said oh you think that about the scriptures well you're out you just go on ahead and get out well he came back around and he's leading a group against Calvin, again, not because he likes Servetus, but because he is looking at Servetus as a cause he can take on to get back at Calvin. And ever since then, ever since that, that cruel death, the burning of Servetus has become a symbol of the rigid dogmatism of Calvin's Geneva. Now, it's a little bit unfair because Calvin didn't want him to die that way, but he, didn't want, to, but he did want him to die. And what you see with this Calvinist movement is you have a lot of very, they're very rigid in beliefs and very strong in being reactionary. They're not going to just be on the defensive. They're going to be on the offensive. And you kind of see that vein through the years in the reformed movement. Now, I'm not saying that in any way trying to be negative or hurtful to anyone. It's certainly not characteristic of everybody. But if you look through history, and we're going to see this as we go through this group, 
they made a big impact and they did it because they were not willing to just sit back. They were, they took on the same kind of tone that Calvin had. Calvin was a guy, he was going to react to the things that were going on. He didn't have a problem with getting put in exile. It happened more than once in his life. So that same kind of bent, that same kind of thread, it's carried down. Now you compare that to Lutheranism and remember Luther had a hands-off approach to social issues. He didn't want to, he just said, that's not my arena. The church should be over here and do the church's thing and the state should be over here and do the state thing and they shouldn't really mix up. So you see those two groups through the years, Lutherans are going to be more tolerant of societal things. They're not going to be reactionary and they're certainly not going to think that it's their job to try to make the law of God be the law of the land. The reform movement is different and we'll see that at the end here. They take on very different tones and they're taking on the tone of their leadership. And it's just amazing that it still maintains those same ideas, those same tones come down all the way to modern times. So just, just very interesting to look at that. So that was one thing, but there was another big thing that came about because of this too. Following Servetus' execution, Calvin's authority in Geneva had no rival. So he was almost to the point where leadership had turned on him, was about to kick him out again. But now because of this, because Calvin led the charge against Servetus and Servetus was ultimately put to death, now Calvin's leadership has been galvanized and there's nobody that can oppose him anymore. Calvin lived to see the opening of the Genevan Academy where the youth of Geneva and various other parts of Europe were educated according to Calvinist principles. Thus, Calvinism spread throughout Europe and Calvin died on May 27, 1564. So a big reason that Reformed theology became so prevalent and so influential and spread as much as it did is because of this academy where obviously Calvin's, Calvinism was being taught to the, to the young people there. And it wasn't just the people of Geneva, the young people of Geneva, they would come from all over Europe and eventually even further places to become educated there at this academy. And obviously when they left, they took back Calvinism with them. And when they left to go be ministers of churches or, or whatever role they were going to play, they were taking the teachings of Calvin. So his, his ideas, his theology spread widely early on. It spread widely throughout his life and it spread even more widely after he was gone. And it's still very, very influential today. Very, very influential person when it comes to Protestantism. No question about that. Now to end things today, let's look at Calvin and Calvinism. What were the things about Calvinism that in the time that Calvin was alive that really made it what, what would people have identified with Calvinism? And it may surprise you a little bit to know what it is because you probably have one thing in mind that's kind of the thing today. But let, let's look at this. During Calvin's lifetime, the main issue dividing Protestants was the manner and presence of Christ in communion. Remember, this was the big deal. Martin Luther broke from the Catholic Church and he broke from transubstantiation, but he didn't break, break all the way. He, he came up with what came to be known as consubstantiation, that the the elements didn't literally turn into the historical body and blood of Jesus, but the body and blood of Jesus were with the elements. It was kind of a, he, he didn't want to stray too far from church teaching, even though he knew that the idea of transubstantiation was not correct. So Martin Luther went to that point. Zwingli came along and he went the opposite direction. He said it's purely symbolic. 100%, there's no body and blood of Jesus in communion. There, none of that takes place at all. Jesus is just using that. He's using those elements as symbolic of his body, symbolic of his blood. 
They are a metaphor to teach, but they are not literal. It's not a literal thing. So what's Calvin's position on this? Calvin followed the lead of his friend Martin Bucer, who took an intermediate position between Luther and Zwingli. Calvin affirmed that the presence of Christ in communion is real, but it's spiritual. So there is a real presence. It's not just symbolic. This means that such presence is not merely symbolic. Rather, there is in it a true divine action for the church that partakes of the sacrament. So he, this is more of a supernatural thing. It's happening on a spiritual level, but there is the, the body and blood of Jesus is there. Christ is with that. It's not just a symbol. It's not just a, merely a, a symbolic thing. It's not just saying this bread is like my body. This, blood, this wine is like my blood. It, 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 in Calvin's view, goes beyond this. And again, it's, this comes from Bucer. So it's not, it's certainly not 100% Luther's side, but it's also not Zwingli. It's in, the, it's in between the two. On the other hand, this does not mean that the body of Christ descends from heaven. So that, uh, listen on to this, because this is where things get a little bit, a little bit complicated. In the act of communion by the power of the Holy Spirit, believers are taken to heaven and share with Christ in the foretaste of the heavenly banquet. All of these ideas about the Lord's Supper, communion, you read what the Catholic Church came to, you read what Luther came to, you read what Zwingli came to, you read what Calvin came to. Very few of these ideas are in Scripture. Jesus simply took bread and wine and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The point of it was to remember what Jesus Christ had done for us. All of this other stuff, it's just kind of things that people came up with. And, you know, Zwingli's position was that it was purely symbolic. So he didn't really take that view as being anything more than what he just read in Scripture. But but for these other guys' opinions, he was he was lessening the, the communion because Jesus did say, this is my body, this is my blood. But I think the the main part of that whole the whole thing is the remembrance part, and not necessarily what the elements are, uh, certainly what they represent remind you. But anyway, my my point is that with all of this stuff with the communion, this was the big central issue of the day. They could not, there could not be unity amongst the tro Protestant traditions, not because of the things that maybe divide us now but because of the one thing that they could not get through by, and that was what they all felt about communion. And the point I'm trying to make is the things that they thought about communion were probably not very scriptural anyway. And so it's a shame that that's what it came down to, but it did. In 1526, Bucer, Luther, and others had reached the Wittenberg Concord, which made room for both Luther's and Bucer's views. So they came to an agreement. They were okay. These two leaders were okay with each other. In 1549, Bucer, Calvin, and the main Swiss Protestant theologians and several from southern Germany signed the Zurich Consensus, which was just a, it's a similar document. Just We're all still on the same page. We don't all 100% agree, but we can agree to disagree a little bit, and we can be okay if the position is this. And so these prominent leaders, they weren't the source of the conflict. It was another source for it. Also, Luther was pleased with Calvin's Institutes. Luther really liked what Calvin had written, and he agreed with it. So they didn't have this big problem. There's no reason the difference between Calvin and Luther on communion should have created an insurmountable obstacle to Protestant unity. But the followers of these teachers were less flexible in their views. And it's the followers 
that took the teachings and made them more rigid and even expanded them to things that probably these leaders would not have identified with themselves. We'll get into more of that as we go through the year, go through the, the years in Christian history and looking at these, looking at these different traditions of, of Protestantism, how far away they got from what their leaders, probably their true intents. And it's pretty amazing to look at that, and we will see that. Continuing on, in 1552, Joachim Westfall, a Lutheran, published a treatise against Calvin. Some Calvinists responded by accusing Lutherans of being practically Catholics. So here are the two, the two traditions. Not the main leadership couldn't get along, but the followers couldn't get along. And so they start calling each other names. Here, here's a guy going out against Calvin, so the Calvinists don't like that. So they just say, well, you know what, Lutherans, you're basically Catholics anyway. You're, you're barely one step away from being Catholic. So they're being petty, so they can't get along, so we can't have unity in the Protestant tradition, unfortunately. The result was a growing divide between Lutherans and those who accepted the Zurich Consensus, who then became known as the Reformed. Therefore, during this early period, the main characteristic of Calvinist or Reformed theology was not its position on predestination, on which it generally agreed with Lutherans, but its understanding of communion. So the huge issue, if you want to talk about any issue in Protestant circles today between Reformed and non-Reformed, the issue is not communion. It's not, that is not even going to come up. It is predestination. But at this time, there was no disagreement about predestination. These guys, both Luther and Calvin, were heavily influenced by Augustine, and Augustine was heavily for sovereignty of God and predestination. He was one of the only early church leaders that was, but he was also the most influential early church leader. So they would not have had a problem about that. There would have been very little disagreement, if any, but it's because of communion. It would be the following century that predestination would be seen as the hallmark of Calvinism, and we'll certainly get to that point. Calvin's theological influence was soon felt throughout Europe. Eventually, in several European countries, a number of churches appeared that followed the teaching of Calvin, now known as Reformed or Calvinistic. In most of these countries, Calvinism was joined with a zeal for reforming society that did not exist in Lutheran areas. Calvinists were convinced that it was their duty to make the civil government conform to the law of God. Therefore, one of the most lasting consequences of Calvinism was a series of revolutions that opened the way for the modern world. And we'll certainly be looking a whole lot more of that as we go through this study. So thanks for taking time with me today. I appreciate you listening in each week. I hope you enjoyed this. As you got a first glimpse at John Calvin, his influence, and what kind of set up what Calvinism was going to become and reformed theology, the reformed tradition of the Protestant movement. And hope you, again, hope you enjoyed it and hope to have you back again next week as we look at Protestant, the Protestant Reformation in Great Britain. Until that time, Lord be with you. God bless.